back in Romans chapter 9 this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Um, last week, we, we covered in chapter 9 verses 1 through 18, which uh, is, is a, quite a bit of ground, a lot of verses, a lot of different things there to cover. And I'll be honest with you, one of the things that's, that's challenging for me, uh, or one of the many things probably, but it's, it's just determining when we're going through a book, uh, we're going through a study, it's just determining the pace in which we go. Um, I know there are some churches, some pastors that can really cover a lot of ground really quickly, and they're covering you know huge chunks of, of verses and chapters per week. And then there's other churches and pastors they'll they'll spend two or three weeks you know on one verse or something. So uh, I guess I'm probably somewhere in the middle is where I try to aim. I guess is is knowing when to hit the brakes in a passage and knowing when to hit the accelerator and trying to determine that. Um, it's, it's one of those things, it's, it's, it's oftentimes difficult. But our goal at Connect Church what is, regardless of who's teaching or preaching, is that we want to just teach the, the Word accurately. And sometimes that does mean covering one verse. Uh, and sometimes that means covering, I know if you think back to our series in Exodus, we were covering two and three chapters uh, at a time, depending on what it might have been. So, um, you know, having said that, it's, it's one of the, the challenging things to, to, to know what to do. And so sometimes I don't want to ever feel like I'm leaving people behind or I don't want to feel like we're kind of stalled out and we're, we're on the same thing again. And I don't, I don't want to do either one of those. But one thing I do use a lot of, as you guys know, is I, I try not to determine that myself. Uh, I'm not that smart. So what I do is I use a lot of other biblical resources and, and uh, biblical study tools and study notes and sermons and uh, things from people way smarter than me, kind of gauging where we could fit, uh, where that fits in for us. And that's why you almost, every Sunday, you'll hear me quote uh, somebody from, from somewhere that has either, you know, wrote a book or commentary or they've preached or whatever it might have been on that passage uh, I, I just, I never want you to leave Connect Church on a Sunday and say, well, that's Thad's thoughts on Romans 9. Um, I, I just don't want that. And so I rely uh, really heavily on the, um, the, the, the resources that are out there, but also just the Word itself to penetrate uh, our minds and our hearts. Um, obviously, my thoughts and my opinions are inevitable because I interject them, but I don't want that to be the, the foundation of what we're learning in, in any series, especially in a series that is as deep as, as Romans. And so one of those people that, that I often quote, and among many others, is, is Dr. John Piper. And a lot of you know Dr. Piper. If you don't, there he is. Uh, he is the founder and teacher of DesiringGod.org. If you haven't been to that website, I highly recommend it. Uh, he's not the only one on that website. There is tons and tons of like great Bible teaching, um, Bible studies, men's studies, women's studies, a lot of really good stuff. But he, uh, for 33 uh, years, he served as the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so he's the, the founder of DesiringGod.org and the chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. And I know a lot of you've probably read some of his books or you've listened to some of his sermons, or maybe you've never even seen that guy or heard of him. That, either way, that's fine. Um, I, I, but he, his teaching of Scripture has impacted a lot of, I mean, uh, countless people. I would say um, going back a generation, you think of Billy Graham, and you think of the things that he accomplished, and his was more of an uh, evangelistic, you know, outreach kind of uh, ministry. But I see Dr. Piper up there with uh, Billy Graham in terms of the teaching of Scripture and the impact uh, that he's had on millions and millions of lives, including mine. And so um, I, I rely heavily uh, on, on men like him when we get to these tough passages of Scripture because I don't, I don't always trust my natural instincts when we come to, well, when I come to anything, but especially when I come to something that's kind of hard to teach. And, and last week, as you guys know, it was a, it's a difficult passage. It's a, a lot in there, a lot of, like I say, kind of, I kind of call it, quote-unquote, Christian controversy, which is not really controversy. It's just like things Christians like to argue about or, or, or debate, which can be good. Usually it's not. Usually it's just for fun or whatever. But 
Um, so anyway, I say all that to say that t- t- today we're going to do something a little different. And if you know anything about me is that I like to do things different. I think, I mean, I love routine, don't get me wrong. Um, I, I like staying in routine. But one thing, growing up in the church, like a lot of you did, um, one thing that kind of, I guess, just bored me out and made it seem boring was it's the same thing every week, right? And I'm like, man, I got to go sit through this again, and I got to do this again. And it was like just the same things over and over. And so I always was, was looking for, like, even like Sundays when we just do something slightly different. I'm like, oh, that's kind of fun. And so I've always kind of been, it's kind of been my intention to change up things as much as possible, to get us out of the routine as much as possible. Um, and so I'm sorry if that throws you off, catches you by surprise, but I want you to, you know, at least you can think about coming to church every Sunday and you have no idea what will happen. So that's, that's you know, I like that. If, if you can think in terms of that, I know because one thing I always used to, to dread was knowing exactly what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. I'm like, I've, I've sat through this a million times. So, um, and maybe that was just me. Maybe I'm the only one. If that's me, I'm sorry. And if, if you love church and, and you thought it was super exciting and you were at different churches than I was at. So, uh, but anyway, um, so, so last week we covered verses 1 to 18, and we were talking about how God's sovereignty exists in Scripture right alongside the free will and the free choice of man, and how those things coexist. And I made an attempt to explain those things in Scripture, how they can coexist and yet not be contradictory. And ultimately, I told you the truth is, I don't know how that happens. I don't, I can't explain it how both of those things can work together the way they do, but I can guarantee you this, that they both exist, they both exist in Scripture, they both are completely and 100% true and accurate to the Word of God, I just can't always explain how. And so, when you think about God's sovereign predestination of all things, it's one of the most, like, mind-boggling, incredible mysteries of the entire Bible. You know how the, uh, I know at our house we watch the shows like Unexplained Mysteries or it, the, there's a new one out. I think it's like, I forgot what it's called now. I watched it, but like Mysteries of the Abandoned and they find these abandoned sites, houses, whatever, and they do this investigation of oh, what happened here and what happened. And I'm like, this is interesting because like I, it's, there's something about it that actually nobody can explain, which is why they're doing a show and they're just probably making up stuff to make it entertaining. But the, the, the reality is, Anytime there's a, a sense of wonder, a sense of mystery, we're like, that, we're drawn to that, just naturally. That's why sometimes a lot of you, you'll read books that have that element, or you watch movies that have that element. I'm the, I'm the same way. I think we're drawn to mystery, and I think that's one reason that a lot of Christians, we can be drawn to the mystery of, of sovereignty and predestination, because it's, it's hard to understand. How can God be just to ordain that some people are chosen for salvation and yet other people are clearly left out and left in their own sin and left to go to hell after they pass away. I mean, that, that, that it doesn't make sense, right, in our minds logically, yet in Romans 9, that's clearly what it teaches in, in other places too. Uh, quick story with you about how this topic can be confusing um, Last week, my dad was was here in this, in uh, he was here in town from Charlotte. He lives in Charlotte, and uh, he came in for the weekend. To uh, my son Jude had a basketball game. He was coming to watch that. My my daughter Meryl had gymnastics meet, and he came to watch that. And so he spent the whole weekend here, and um, he stayed through Sunday. And so he was here for the service last week, and he was here for the message. And just to make this make sense, to, you got to know this about my dad. He um, he worked in full time ministry for over 30 years in, in various local denominational roles um, all across the state. He's very well educated in terms of theological training. He has his Master's of Divinity degree from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's even taught seminary classes himself at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Charlotte. So obviously uh, last Sunday was not the first time he'd ever heard uh, somebody try to preach on Romans 9. He probably heard it a thousand times. He's probably preached it a thousand times. And uh, after the service, went down to talk to him after the service, and the very first thing he said, he just looked at me with this, like, bizarre look on his face, and he's like, predestination, he's like, it's just one of those things you can't understand. And he just kind of shrugs his shoulders. And I'm like, 
all right. So it's like he's like it was it was this idea of like I'm 30 years older than you. I've 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 been there. I've taught that. I've I've learned that. I have the 45 degrees to show for it, and I still don't understand more than you do. Despite all that, and it was just like I have no idea how that works. And so I don't know how that made me feel about my sermon. I'm like, well, I, okay, good. I guess that was good or bad, or maybe you didn't listen. But either way, um, I thought it was interesting that, uh, and, I've, and I've talked to many other people that have much more experience than me, much smarter than me, much more study than me, and they generally come away with a similar conclusion, like, mm, I, it's there, it's true, don't understand it. Um, and so kind of made me feel a little bit better, but in, in light of the complexity of these verses, where we find ourselves today, and really where we're, we're finding is, is starting in verse 19, um, and we're going to just look at a, just a handful today, 19 to 23, I thought we'd do something slightly different, and that's what I want to do, is just watch a brief uh, excerpt of Dr., uh, John, Dr. John Piper teaching on these actual verses, uh, and the video I'm going to show you, it, it's, a, it's fairly short, but it's... Um, it's from a series uh, from DesiringGod.org, and I wanted you to have access to it. Um, it's called Look at the Book, and the, the little clip we're going to watch is uh, part 10 of a series called The Word of God Has Not Failed. So if you want to find this exact link, the, there's the, the web address right there. And always keep in mind, everything that we put on the screen during the service, we also have attached uh, as sermon notes on the website. So if you want to go back and get things like this, for example, you don't have to write it down. You can, but you can just click on the website, sermon notes, and pull it up. But um, what the Look at the Book series is, a lot of you have gone through that or at least seen part of it. It's, it's a series of relatively short videos where the camera is on the actual text and not the teacher. It's a really interesting way of teaching. And, and so the, the, the focus, a lot of times it might be, uh, Piper that's teaching, but it could be someone else, and the, the focus is not that person. The camera literally stays focused on the, the text itself, and um, there's a ton of these on DesiringGod.org. I've, I've gone through a couple myself, but I obviously haven't watched all of them, but the one thing that this video that we're going to watch is a little bit different is it comes from a live um, event that happened in, in Houston, uh, Texas back in 2014, and Dr. Piper did a, uh, I guess, kind of a tour of live events at Look at the Book events. And so this, what you're seeing is not one of the pre-recorded uh, teaching sessions that you would normally see on the site. This is actually him teaching live uh, in Houston, Texas, in the Look at the Book series. And so you'll see a little bit more of Piper than you would normally see, but you're still going to see a lot of shots, camera shots, of the text itself and how we're going to break that down. So um, if, if, you, um, if you're one of the people that like to write and underline and that kind of thing in your Bible, you need to grab something to write with because it's a good time to do that. I know some people don't like to do that. Some people do. But if you are one of those people, uh, grab something to write with because it's going to really help you to understand that. So what I'm going to simply do is I want to read um, the, the text, the whole text, um, and then uh, I want to let the video play and let Piper kind of break it down in a way that it, to me, makes a whole lot of sense, much, much better than I can explain. And then I want to kind of follow up with some, some areas of uh, application. So, uh, again, this will make a lot more sense if you were here last week or if you listened to the podcast last week because we have to kind of know everything Paul has said up to this point. Um, to dive in at verse 19 is a very strange place to dive in. So hopefully you're caught up. If not, go back, read verses 1 to 18. It'll make a lot more sense. Um, everything that we do kind of builds upon itself. And I'm actually going to backtrack just a bit. So if you will, go back with me to verse 14. I know I covered that last week, but 14 flows into 1920, whatever. It's a more seamless thought, in, at least in my, the way I mentally organize it. So I'm going to read uh, Romans 9, uh, and I'm going to start in verse uh, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And then to the focus part for today, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Let me get into the the video now. So what I'm going to do is pick it up. I hope it doesn't feel hurried. I, I want you to get the sense of what the unit is about and how, how each piece fits in. So we may leave out some details, but I hope you feel like, okay, I got, I got the big picture of how this works. So here we are at 19 to 23. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? So he's, he's with us. He, he, he knows that what he's saying, in, he, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills, and yet he's going to find fault with Pharaoh. Yes, he is. And he asks, why does he do that? For who can resist his will? And the answer to that is nobody. He's just taught that very clearly. That is, nobody can resist his will decisively, ultimately. You can, you can say no to God all day long if he lets you. But if he wants to move into your life and overcome that no with a great yes of new birth, he will and can. <coughs> Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, is that response to the question he just asked a shut up? And don't ask God questions. Is, 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 should we take it that way? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? I don't think so. This word answer back, anta, bakrinamai, it's used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in, um, I don't know if I wrote down the, the actual text. It's in Luke somewhere. Um, but it, what it means is uh, Jesus told, responded to the, the Jewish leaders and it says they were not able to answer him. In other words, they couldn't come up with a way to contradict him. They, could, they had nothing more to say. He had, he had answered their objections and, and they couldn't answer back. So I think answer back carries the connotation of show to be wrong, contradict, get in God's face. How can you do that? Let me give you an illustration. Do you remember the angel comes to Zechariah and Mary, mother of Jesus? To Zechariah, the angel says, you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. And of course, they're beyond years. It's another miracle baby. And, and Zechariah says, how can this be? For we're old. And the angel, remember what he said? I'm Gabriel. I told you. I mean, that, that's my tone of voice. I, <laughs> but I think it's right because he said, you're not talking for nine months. <laughs> he was mad. That question was not acceptable. What was the question? 
you just told me what's going to happen, and I'm answering with a tone that says, can't be. Now, he comes to Mary, and hers is even more amazing. You, a virgin, are going to have a baby. And what does Mary say? She says, how can this be? For I am a virgin. And I think she really means how. <laughs> Not, it can't be. And so he answers her. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the child will be conceived of the Holy Spirit. And the child to be born in you will be called Holy, the Son of God. He answers her. And she goes on her face and says, I am the Lord's handmaiden. Totally different attitude. And so my, my, my sense is that there are lots of questions God is just fine with. But not ones that call him into question. That is, doubt his word. Accuse him of wrong. God will suffer any how question almost. Just the question that says, I don't think so. That question, he will, he will say, I'm God. Or I'm Gabriel. So, no, I don't think that rules out all of our questions. I think good, good questions are, in fact, attractive to God. He wants to help us with them. And then he, I think he goes to give some more help. He says, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, what's his argument there? Is that just a shut up, you're the pot? Answer, or is he getting at something in the nature between potters and and pots? And I I think he's saying, um, what is right for a potter to do? Potters are right to make the kinds of vessels that it is the fulfillment of their wise purposes to make. There are purposes that a potter has. And if, if, the, if the potter is a, a right and good purposing potter, then all those things fit into that purpose. And that's right. That's what potters should do. They make the range of pots that are in the fulfillment of their purpose. And the purpose would be here according to verse 17, uh, to display my power and display display my name, the full range of my attributes are on display in what I make. And always keep in mind here the mystery. No potter, I mean no pot is shattered or, or, or thrown away that doesn't deserve to be thrown away. As strange as that is to us, we must keep that in mind. Verse 22, what if God, now this is a sentence that in Greek is not finished. At the end of verse 23, it just, it just ends. And it's, it's just an if statement. If God this, and then there's no then clause. So to fix that in the English to make it readable, they put what if. And that's okay, provided we know the right answer to the what if. <laughs> so let's, what's the right answer to the what if? What if God, so here, we're trying to figure out... <clears throat> What's the answer to that? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power? Now, what is that a reference back to? That's a reference back to Pharaoh. Verse 17. I desire to show my name and my power through you. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Endured with much patience. Have you ever asked why God suffered Pharaoh to resist him nine times? And then on the tenth one, it's over. Because he planned for that. When he was coming into town, when Moses was coming into town, 
God said to Moses, I will multiply my wonders before you and I will harden his heart. I plan to patiently endure this man's no, 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 yes. I plan to endure that. So I think that's partly what's behind this endured with much patience here. Vessels of wrath. He had planned for this. Prepared for destruction. He drowned him in the, in the Red Sea. In order that, and this is really, really, really important. In order to. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured vessels of wrath like that, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. What's the answer? What if? I think the answer is, then no legitimate fault against God can be raised. No legitimate objection to God can be raised. If God, what if? So leave off the what here. If God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has done all that in order, with this purpose, to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he prepared for him for glory, then there is no unrighteousness with God, and he is not wrong to find fault. Because he has acted in purposefulness <coughs> for the display of the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Which raises this crucial question. When you look at verse 18, he hardens whom he wills and he has mercy on whom he wills. It looks like they're kind of coordinate and parallel. Hardening and mercy, hardening and mercy. Are they? They're not. They're both sovereign, they're both free, but mercy is ultimate and hardening serves it. And I see that in this word in order. God desiring to show his wrath. God desiring to show his wrath and desiring to make known his power, to display his glory, has done it in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Mercy is ultimate and wrath is not. Mercy is being served by wrath. If, if you were to ask me, um, what is the ultimate biblical answer to why evil exists? What's the, is there anything in the Bible that gives an ultimate answer to why evil exists? Remember, I said I don't have an answer to how it exists. I, do, I don't know how Satan became evil. I don't. But that's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking, since God being God ordained that it happen without being a sinner in it, why? Why does evil exist? My answer would be Romans 9, 23. <clears throat> I don't think there's any more ultimate answer given in the Bible than this in order that here. In order to make known the riches of his glory. What, what, what is making known the riches of his glory? Showing wrath. Making known power, enduring vessels of wrath are all for making known the riches of his glory 
for the vessels of mercy. Now think that through. Jonathan Edwards thought it through as profoundly as anybody, I think. And I think I want to read uh, two paragraphs from Edwards and see what you think of this. Um, an ultimate reason for why God would ordain that there be such a thing as evil on which he then shows wrath and power. Why? Edwards. It is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of his glory should shine forth and that every beauty should be proportionately radiant. That the beholder might have a proper notion of God. So the point he's just made is all the glories of God, all the attributes of God, all the excellencies of God should be completely revealed in proportion to their reality. Now, thus, <clears throat> it is necessary that God's awful majesty, His authority and dreadful greatness and justice and holiness should be manifested. And this would not be this could not be, except sin and punishment were decreed. There it is. How could there be dreadful greatness, justice, holiness revealed, wrath revealed, desiring to make known his wrath and his power? How could this be if there were nothing? So let me finish it. Otherwise, the glory shining forth would be very imperfect because the glory of his goodness and love and holiness would be faint without justice and holiness. Nay, they, would, they could scarcely shine forth at all. One more. How does that relate to happiness? As it is, as it is necessary that there should be evil because the glory of God could not be, could be, could not but be imperfect and incomplete without it, so it is necessary in order to the happiness of the creature, in order to the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world. Because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. And if the knowledge of him be imperfect, the happiness must proportionably be imperfect. So he is making known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which they would not fully and perfectly see and enjoy if there were not such a thing as his wrath, his power, his holiness, his justice, and therefore evil is decreed in order that God might be fully known in his holiness and his justice and his wrath against it. And he does all of that without being evil, without committing sin. One of the statements that that if it, if it doesn't exist as a category in your mind, you won't be able to process this, is it is no sin in God to will that there be sin. It is no sin in God to will that there be sin. Many people, even just simple ordinary people, have come up with analogies like a tapestry with the tangles at the bottom, you turn it over and it's beautifully woven at the top, or a canvas that a, a great artist is painting, and he starts by making the whole thing crimson or black. Just, Ooh. 
what are you doing that for? And then he has his oranges and his yellows and his reds and his greens and his blues. And, and then there's this magnificent, beautiful landscape. And you realize without all of that dark background, it w- wouldn't work. That's, that's what I see in verse 23 and 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath in order that the the yellows and the blues and greens would shine proportionably for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And I say it one more time. That will only work if you embrace the fact that in this mystery of election, God never punishes anybody who doesn't deserve to be punished. Election is unconditional, and final judgment is never unconditional, but always deserved by sin. I don't think you will find any more sound teaching in, in this passage than what you just uh, saw there. Uh, there's a lot more that you can go and watch and see. Um, you get a feel for it there. Um, I want to highlight just a couple things, and we're going to close, because I think he laid it out perfectly. One thing, is, there's a, obviously there's a lot of depth in, in what he's sharing. So for some of y'all, that really connected, like, oh, yeah, this, I've never made this make sense, and I'm, you're really making connections. And others of you might be like me, where you kind of get lost in all the drawing, and like, well, how does that? And so some, I'm kind of in between. So if you're lost, don't worry about it. I think that's okay. Um, I had to watch this video five times before I made sense of things. So I'm one of those slow people learners. So don't worry about it if you're lost. You can go watch the video again. But there's a lot of depth here. And the reason I post that is not to make this an academic study, uh, but today is, is, is one of those days that's more about teaching than preaching, and I want you to understand this text because I think it's so vital to our, our core beliefs, if you're a Christian, in, in how these things work. These are, the, these are the questions, honestly, that are asked by the unbeliever. If, if you believe in God, then why does evil exist? How can God allow that to happen? I mean, I've been asked those questions by, by, by students, by uh, adults, by my own family members at times, you know, non-believers, they want to know what he's talking about. And I think if we can grab a, just a little bit of understanding from what he's talking about, we can understand it for ourselves and be able to hopefully help others to see what the Bible's teaching. But I don't, I don't want you to miss what he said there at the end of the video. He said it kind of quick, and I got it up here on the screen in terms of um, the, the quote, two quotes, really. He says, number one, God never punishes anybody who does not deserve to be punished. Okay, you got to just stop right there. And by the way, if you go back to Romans 3, this, this correlates, I, I correlated it last week, that's everybody, right? For all have sinned. All have fallen short. So God never punishes. It's not like he takes an innocent person and they're punished. That never happens because there is no one ever innocent. That's why that question of, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people is the most craziest question in all the world because there is no such thing as a good person. You have to understand that. You may like relatively think you're good compared to the murderer on death row, but God says that all have sinned and all have fallen short. So there is no bad things that happen to good people because there are no good people. So anytime somebody asks that question, I immediately know that they don't understand the, the state of our soul. The Bible says that we were born into iniquity. When you were born, I, I, I talk about my kids all the time, when they were born, I could see their sin nature almost immediately. Their selfishness, the, 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 just in, in, even in an infant, you know, it's, and then especially, boy, when they get to be a toddler, oh my gosh, you talk about those selfish human beings on the planet. And so, and now I've got a, a, a seven and nine-year-old, and they're getting even more selfish. So I hear that keeps going in teenage years, so I, I can only imagine but my point is, they're not good people. I'm not a good person. There's nobody in here that's good. So when you ask that question, well, why does God allow bad things? Just stop. We deserve what, what he's saying is God never punishes anybody 
who does not deserve to be punished. And then secondly, he said, election is unconditional. Election, the, the, the being uh, elected to be chosen, to be predestined, whatever you want to call it, to, to be, be saved, whatever the terminology you want to use, is unconditional. And yet, final judgment is never unconditional. It's always deserved by and because and therefore and subsequently by sin. So you have to understand these foundations if we're going to swim in these deep waters of Romans 9. Because I think if you don't understand these things and you get into a passage like Romans 9, it's like when you're, you try to go swimming at the, uh, at, in the ocean at the beach. And you, you might be a good swimmer, but it doesn't take very long, right? Get lost in a current and you were trying to swim from point A to point B and you ended up at point F or G, or Z, or wherever, because you, you, you wanted to go here, but you ended up over here. And I think when we get into a passage like Romans 9, if we don't have some real strong guidance, like the foundation of what Piper laid out, I think we, we start out with good intentions, and we end up like a totally different direction, and we can be lost at sea very, very quickly, especially in a passage that, that carries this much depth. But the other part of Piper's teaching that I found especially interesting was the quotes he read from Jonathan Edwards. Which, by the way, I think it's fascinating that, I mean, how cool do you have to be to be quoted by Piper? I mean, Jonathan Edwards, amazing. You've got to read some Jonathan Edwards stuff. Uh, but he's quoting Jonathan Edwards. But one of the things that Edwards said that hit home with me, and I don't think Piper even shared it in this particular video. He might have. I might have just missed it. But he does share it on the, on the link, if you go to the link that I shared with you in the notes. And I wanted to close with this thought, and this is just a one-sentence thought from Jonathan Edwards that goes, I think it's the perfect summary of, of Romans 9, especially verse 23. Here's what he says. He said, there would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. Here's a summary of Romans 9, 23. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness. In other words, we wouldn't know his grace, we wouldn't know his goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned and if there was no misery to be saved from. I think that really summarizes 9.23 so well. And y'all, y'all that, that verse that he talked about so much in the video, in order, I think he put 75 circles around in order. And by the way, Anytime you see those two words in Scripture, it's probably a good idea to put 75 circles around it because it's, it's relating one message to another and it's connecting them. So it's not just words like in order, whatever. No, when you see those two words, you better really pay attention because you're connecting two thoughts and it's like a bridge. And so that's why you saw all those blues and reds and stuff he circled. But in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In order to make known the riches of his glory. So let's go back to the question we started with, the question Piper addresses. Why would God ordain evil? Why would God choose to show mercy to some people and at the same time not show mercy to other people? And honestly, these questions are tough. And these questions are hard to wrestle with but I encourage you to spend the time to do it. And that's not going to happen on a Sunday morning in 35 minutes or something. It, it, it takes time for you to sit down and wrestle with the Scripture, read it for what it is. And that's why I love this look at the book series is it's really looking at the text. And it's not so much about the opinion or the, the teaching style of John Piper. It, that might appeal to you. It might not. It doesn't matter. What does or should appeal to you is the text itself. And that's why I like this series is because it kind of takes out the, the, the speaker, so to speak, or so to the teacher, whatever, and then it looks at the text. And so ultimately, I think the answer to that question is, is, is exactly where Piper landed. Verse 23 is that God has done what he has done in order to make known the riches of his glory. He's done what he's done to make known the riches of his glory. And I've said this in, in countless other sermons, and I know it's been said by countless other people, but God's plan is always about God's glory. And when you approach Scripture from that vantage point, it should revolutionize the way you read Scripture. Because generally speaking, 
everything we watch on TV, everything we read in books that's not biblically based, you are the center, and I am the center. And so our plan is about our glory. And so when I'm watching the TV show, it's, it's about that main character and somehow how I can relate to that character and how I can receive redemption and I can learn from this and I can, you know, whatever. And whatever the basis is, the bottom line is everything in our culture is about us. And so when you watch a movie when you, and you read a book, and I'm not against those things, I do it all the time, keep in mind, they start with the foundation that you're the point and you're not the point and I'm not the point. So when you read the Bible, you have to totally change your shift in, in, in thinking, and you have to go with it. And sometimes I write things in my Bible, I write things on notes. This is one thing I have to always remember, that God's plan is not about Thad's glory. God's plan is not about fill in the blank your glory. It's not about that. And so when you read the Scripture and you understand that his plan is about his glory, things start making a lot more sense because you're not the point. I'm not the point. And so what my hope is this morning is, is, is really, really simple. We'll have the, the band to come. They're going to close us out here. It's just simply this, guys, is that this little 20-minute session w- would be just a little spark for you that would spark this tiny spark in your life that would spark desire for the Word. Because whether it was John Piper himself standing here especially me standing here. Anybody standing here can only do so much. If you don't have a desire for the Word and you're not studying, you're not piling through it, you're not using great resources, I don't expect anybody to sit down with the Bible and like be able to read it. Oh, man, I, that totally makes sense. That's never happened for me. I've never sat down with the Bible and read it one time, first time, first time I read, read the chapter, and like, oh, thank you, God, for speaking to me. I'm, I'm not that smart. I'm not that smart. So I, I have to read what was before it, and I have to read what was after it, and I have to spend some time praying through it, and I have to spend some time understanding the context of it, and I have to use some, some resources that are out there, and, and that, that might be something that you hate, and that's fine. If you don't like Piper, you're not going to hurt my feelings at all. That might not relate to you, but I'm telling you there is something out there that can relate, and you have to put in the investment into the Word to understand it. it it's, it's one of those things, it's, it's not going to just you know, you put the Bible under your pillow and it happens through osmosis. Like overnight, the Word of God gets into my mind and it weaves in and out and now I understand it. It doesn't work like that. So what I hope today is more than anything is hopefully making some clarifications from point A to point B about predestination and free will and, and being a Calvinist or a non-Calvinist and all that kind of stuff. But more than that, way, way, way more than that, that I hope this is a spark to start a desire in your life for the Word of God because that's really where you're going to grow. It's not, you're not going to grow from hearing me preach. I can guarantee you that. And you're not going to grow from just simply listening to Dr. John Piper teach. If that's all you do, press play. That was good. Didn't understand any of it. You're, you're not going to grow. All right? So you have to have that desire. And that's what I pray this morning does for you is spark that desire to be in the Word, to read the Word, and, and wrestle with it. You know, what, you know what wrestling is? It means it's, it's hard. You think about wrestling itself. You think about, I was watching, I love watching MMA. I was watching MMA last night. That's why I'm so sleepy this morning. And they had a fight, and it was gruesome. And it was, and it was like the, a knockout in the first round. But it was one of the, like, nastiest things because they're sitting there wrestling, and it was hard, and they're sweating, and they're bleeding. And I'm thinking, that right there is what I should be doing with the Word, is it shouldn't be easy. When those guys get into that octagon, they're not just, mm, I'm going to have my daily devotional. They're getting there because they've trained to get there. They've been training for years for that one moment to go in there and fight their opponent. And it's bloody, and it's sweaty, and it's hard. And when they get done, they're exhausted. And sometimes when you get done reading the Word of God, you should be exhausted. And I think sometimes we want to just sit with our nice little coffee and drink. And mm, First Chronicles makes so much sense. I'm going to go about my day. It's, it, it just doesn't work like that. I think we have this false idea of what Christianity should look like, and I think social media has played into that. We're like, oh, I'm doing my devotions this morning, got my cup of coffee, the sun's rising, I get the breeze on me. That's not what Bible reading's about. You may have some of those moments, and I hope you do, but bottom line is it, it should be nasty. It should be hard. It should be almost bloody. It should be to the point where I don't understand this, and I need some help. And you seek out help. You seek out resources. You seek out prayer. You put in the work necessary to be successful in understanding the Word of God. Because that's the only way you're going to grow. I don't mean to be 
uh, over the top with you, but that's just the truth. That's the only way you're going to grow. So are you going to prepare for it, or are we just going to, like, have this kind of what uh, I've heard called Christianity light, the diet version, right, where you get this, and we're like, I, yep, I read my chapter for today. I feel pretty good about it. I have no idea what it said, but I got my diet Christianity, and I am fulfilled. I don't want you guys to be there. I don't want myself to be there. So that's why I hope this morning sparks in you that desire for the Word of God. Guys in the band, you guys can come up. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're done for the day. Lord, thank you uh, for your Word. Um, I thank you that you love us enough that you've given us your Word. And yet I know that we take it for granted every single day. Me, the chief of that. No one takes it more for granted than I do. And so I know there's other people in this room that do that. And, and, and Lord, I would just pray that the teaching from, from uh, John Piper this morning, the, the time in your word, yes, it would help connect some dots when it comes to the idea of, of predestination and the idea of how you work. And, and, and I hope it does that, Lord. And, and that's, that's my first prayer. But my, my second prayer, my ultimate prayer, is that it would spark for us a desire for your word. And that might not look pretty. And it might mess up our routine. And it might kind of throw a wrench into our schedule that we have to lose an hour of sleep or go to bed later or get up earlier or, 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 or skip lunch at or something. I don't know what it means, but I know it means somewhere there's got to be some sacrifice and work invested. That nothing in this life comes without investment of hard work. And, and why we would think that's not true when it comes to reading the Bible is baffling. We think we can just read a couple verses and let that be our life verse. And I'm going to cling to that the rest of my life. And Lord, I, I, those verses are good, but that's not going to carry us but so far. We have the entire Bible. Lord, I, I just pray that, that this morning is just a spark that starts a consuming fire in my life and in the lives of the people in this room for your word that we would invest we would labor we would study we would read we would ask questions we would seek out resources Lord you've given us the biggest blessing of all living in this age of technology where at the few clicks of my finger I can find four billion resources to help me understand the Bible this is crazy Thank you, for, thank you for what you've, you've given to us. And I pray that because it's so easy that we wouldn't take it for granted. I think we settle for the diet version so much. And I pray that we would, we would go for the real thing. That we would feast on your word. Especially, especially when we don't understand it. When we come to a text like Romans 9 where I couldn't even preach on it today. Because I understand it so little. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us each other to rely on. The, the Jonathan Edwards, the, the John Pipers, the, the people in this congregation that I've reached out to. Help me understand this situation. Help me understand this text because I don't get it. Lord, thank you for the resources you've given us. But most of all, we thank you for your son and we thank you for your, your Holy Spirit. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.